0: Whenever the church canonizes someone, she always has to fit that person into some specific category. The earliest saints in the church were all martyrs. Then later on, they came to be canonized for their virtues, their qualities, their charity. We get St. Martin de Tours who was the first saint to be canonized who was, not a, who was not a martyr some of them are bishops some of them are religious, some of them are virgins some were educators some served the poor in the case of our father his title was St. Maria priest St. Maria comma priest in other words, he would not have become founder of Opus Dei if he had not first become a priest. And as he would say, a priest, 100% a priest. And today we celebrate the anniversary of his priesthood, the day he became a priest. As the psalm says, to es sacerdo sin eternum, segundum ordinem Melchizedek, a phrase that is often applied to priests because they receive that mark, the sacred mark of orders, that establishes them as a priest of Jesus Christ, according to the order of Melchizedek, that mysterious figure that Abraham encountered on his way back from battle. He was not a priest, according to the Levites, the order of the Levites, but this new figure that was shadowy, that was not clear that had no lineage, and that offered him bread and wine. And so today, in our prayer, we evoke the figure of Saint Ezrain. We can evoke, of course, the moment that made him a priest, his ordination, which took place on March 28, 1925, in Saragossa. It was the Saturday before Passion Sunday. He was, in fact, too young to be ordained at that time, and he had to receive a dispensation from Pope Pius uh, the Eleventh. Twenty-three is very young. C- certainly, today you would need a dispensation as well. Probably, even if he was uh, older now, you would probably still need a dispensation. Because you have to apply for it, it takes time. They have to study it. They have to get recommendations from the rector, from the bishop we picture it now he was ordained together with nine deacons and also there were a number of uh, subdeacons and others as well as 10 priests so he was in a group some were deacons some were sub subdeacons and others were priests It took place in the chapel of Saint Carlos, or San Carlos, this beautiful 17th century gem that was attached to the seminary of Saragossa. That's a chapel in which he spent many hours on the balcony, at the very back of the church, in the dim light. Sometimes he would pray until late in the night, but nobody there but our Lord just talking to the Lord praying abandoning himself to divine providence very often seminary chapels are quite beautiful they're sometimes very ornate quite solid looking they're not churches they're they're chapels but they're meant for young seminarians as a place to pray where you see the crucifix usually a large crucifix so that they can Help, well, help them discern whether this is what God calls them to. They're being educated, they're learning theology, but at the same time, they have to discern. They have to listen to what the Lord is saying, whether He really wants them for this ministry. Often, when you enter a seminary chapel, you find one soul person, some guy there praying, and it helps you to pray. Lord, give them light help him to discern if this is what you really want for him. Well, in the midst of that discernment, our father was praying about this, and he would have been ordained by the Cardinal of Zaragoza, Cardinal Juan de de Soldevilla, but this this cardinal was, was brutally assassinated, On May 14th, 1924, by a bullet of an anarchist in broad daylight, he was murdered. And of course it was not an isolated murder, it was just one of the many acts of violence against priests, against religious, against the church, that eventually led to the civil war in Spain. So it was a very, very difficult time. And so this bishop who was going to ordain our father, and our father would have thought of him as as the one who would of course ordain him, he was killed. And I'm sure it affected our father quite a bit. You know, he might have said, Well, what's next? Who's going to ordain me now if this is in fact God's will? Should he keep going? Well, he kept silent and he kept praying. Eventually, another bishop was appointed, Miguel de los Santos, who was originally the Auxiliary of Saragossa, and, uh, but recently named the bishop of, of Osma in the area of Burgos, so not, not very far away. And, um, and he was the one who stepped in. Well, he was a bishop, so he would validly ordain him. But it wasn't the one he expected. We can picture a ceremony now with all those other priests and those deacons. There's a part of the ritual that foresees that the presiding bishop exhorts the candidate of his duties, that is the duties of the priest, that he has to offer sacrifice, that he has to bless, that he that he has to govern, he has to preach, that he has to baptize, all the common characteristics of any, any bishop. And as he hears this, these things, the, the candidate is filled with awe and trepidation, because he's really receiving a very huge gift from God, and not some kind of privilege, this is not some kind of software update, or software upgrade it's really not just an occasion to dress differently already in some places seminarians themselves have to wear the clergyman <clears throat> as a well as a sign that they are as well as being formed but they can be seminarians therefore not priests but still be dressed like that they look exactly like priests but they're not priests you can tell they're they're quite young often right but uh, but now with the priesthood they will be sealed they will become ministers of Christ they will be entrusted with this power to act as another Christ here on earth and they have well this sacrament of orders which will give them a particular power and uh, when when the bishop says this are you ready Are you ready to do all these duties, these functions? The candidate has to say in a loud voice, "Adsum. Adsum. I am present, I am here. Yes, I will do this. In the midst of this uh, liturgical ceremony, our Father put his whole heart into this. There was the anointing of the hands, which is called the Traditio Instrumentorum, where they give the, the new priest the chalice, and uh, some other items that he will use in his priestly ministry. Then come the words of consecration, the moment of his prostration. Probably the prostration is the most moving moment because as, he, as the candidate lies there on the ground, he can't see anything. He can only, he can only hear the litany of the saints being invoked all those great saints that came before him. You know, and all he hears is You know, St. Teresa, Oda Pronobis, St. Paul, Oda Pronobis, St. Peter, Oda Pronobis, St. Jean-Marie Vianney, Oda Pronobis. And this lineup of greatness of great saints can be quite intimidating. Yet, as you hear this litany, you also know, though you are called to be a saint like them, you also know that they will be interceding for you, that they will be praying for you. And that lifts you up, that perks you up, that you're not alone here. Even though all you can see is the floor right in front of you. Just gotta make sure you don't fall asleep in that moment. Then come comes the imposition of the hands. There in silence, the bishop simply imposes his hands. And that's it. Now I'm a priest. There's no going back. Then the other authorities there, other priests also impose the hands, but that's more of a sign of solidarity and unity, but it's the the imposition of the hands of the bishop that counts, transmitting the, the the sacrament of orders. There's also the anointing of the hands, because it's these hands that will will anoint will well that are consecrated, these hands. Pope Francis loves this image of the anointing. He says it has its roots in the Old Testament with this precious oil poured on the head of Aaron, running down his head, running down his beard, upon the collar of his sacred robes. The oil was not just a light dab. It was really just like this oil pouring down upon him. This is how Pope Francis described it in the Chrism Mass in 2013, this Mass that, where we bless the oils and all the priests, commemorate their own priesthood on Holy Thursday. He said, from, from the beauty of all these liturgical things, which is not so much about trappings and fine fabric, than about the glory of our God, resplendent in his people, alive and strengthened. The precious oil which anoints the head of Aaron does more than simply lend fragrance to this person. It overflows down to the edges. The Lord will say this clearly. His anointing is meant for the poor, the prisoners, and the sick, for those who are sorrowing and alone, My dear brothers, uh, the ointment is not intended just to make us fragrant, much less to be kept in a jar, for then it will become rancid and the heart bitter. So this uh, this image of of the oil running down into the edges of of his garment. Indeed, this is what our father did too. When when he first began the work, he, he would go to the poor, the sick, those in the in the peripheries of the city that were, you know, that were not the wealthy. He talked to them. He gave them encouragement. And above all, he trusted a lot in their prayer, their offering, their sufferings, for what he was now beginning to undertake with the founding of Opus Dei. Now, at the ceremony, there were very few relatives, only the essentials. His mother, Dolores, Carmen, his sister and, and his brother, Santiago, who was only six years old at the time, probably had very little recollection and didn't really know what this was all about. And it was a, at the same time a, a sad moment because a few months before, in November of 1924, so just a few months, he had received the news that his father had passed. So his father knew that he would be a priest or would study certainly to be a priest, but he passed away before he could actually witness this. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a sweet moment, a joyful moment, but also had this bitterness of his father not seeing him. First Mass was in the Lady Chapel in Saragossa. In the Cathedral of Saragossa, has has like, the main chapel there, that shows Our Lady of Saragossa with, uh, or, or rather, Our Lady of El Pilar, that is always uh, busy, always a lot of people there. And it's hard, it's hard to reserve a place for a for first mass. But in this case, there were, there were not a lot of people. His mother, Polortis, had gotten up sick that morning. And, uh, during the ceremony got very emotional because she was moved by the moment, but also her husband was not there. Santiago was a little boy. Her father remembers her dressed in mourning in black. Afterwards, there was a a little reception prepared by Doña Dolores. Uh, She prepared some kind of rice meal as best she could. Our father would say afterwards, uh, I never thought of dedicating myself to God. The problem never came up, because I thought it was not for me. But our Lord was preparing things, giving me one grace after another, passing over my defects, my childhood errors, and adolescent mistakes. He had dreamed of being an architect, but God had other plans. But he says in this preparation, God had given him many graces that took time for him to realize that they were actually graces. We all know how he was struck to the heart when he saw the footprints in the snow of this discalced Carmelite. That was one, one grace in that cold morning when, as a teenager, and he, he was shivering. He could see that someone had walked barefoot in the snow. And it, it had quite an impact on him to think that somebody, in an early morning, when it's cold, they could somebody could walk like that in the snow with their bare feet. We can pray now that all the priests of the work be ready to walk in the snow, that they be, in other words, ready to be as dedicated as as that Carmelite was, ready to walk with cold feet, or even just to get cold feet in the in the service of others, not that they not overly protect their comfort or their well being. This original grace that our father had received and seeing this in some way can kind of continue its existence later our father read similar events with other saints like Saint Teresa how her heart was also moved when she was going through a book and she came upon a picture of of the wounded hand of the Redeemer it was just a picture maybe it was a print maybe it was a a woodcut a a simple woodcut of some kind in those days, it was not that easy to reproduce pictures. It would have been, so to speak, an, an original. But when she just saw that wounded hand, it, it made an impression on her. It led her to pray more and to really be ready for what the Lord wanted, just by seeing that picture. At least she mentions that. I, I've never seen that picture, but I can imagine the kind it might have been. There's a famous folding hands by by German artist Albrecht Dürer, who was known for his woodcuts and his etchings. Maybe it was something like that. But you could say that St. Josemaria saw our Lord's feet in the snow on that chilly morning. Whereas Teresa saw his hands. Bridget of Sweden, St. Bridget, she saw the five wounds when she was in Rome in the 14th century. She she suddenly got this vision of the wounds on the side, on the hands, on the feet. St. Teresa saw that, but St. Francis saw the stigmata, or he saw the, the stigmata in his own hands. As others have done in the past. St. Thomas the Apostle came to believe when he put his finger in the Lord's side, into that wound which had been so painful during the Passion and was like the final stroke that Longinus had pierced him. And when he was risen, he maintained and kept that, that open wound. It was no longer painful after he rose, but it was like the badge of victory. That's why traditionally we think of those wounds during the Easter vigil when the priest traces them on the Easter candle and reminds us of those wounds. So so, as we think of the wounds or the feet or the cold feet, uh, we are invited to think about the grace that the Lord sends us when we have to be generous, when we have to give of ourselves, when we have to in some way suffer for the love of others, in our mission, in our vocation. Now when our father came out of that ceremony of ordination, all those graces came back to him and he thought, "Paul, it was worth it. He had experienced a lot of opposition, But now, it's as though he felt like a nice new warm piece of bread that had just come out of the oven. We've all experienced that, warm bread that comes out of the oven. For that matter, even bread that comes out of the toaster is pleasant. And, of course, bread, when it comes out of the oven, usually cools off very fast. But he didn't want that. He wanted to stay warm. He wanted to stay on fire without being burnt we can ask the Lord now to to make us like that loaf that, that warm loaf of bread still warm and on fire without being burnt we know that one of his uncles was a cleric who wanted to pull some strings so that he could get a good comfortable position and move up the ecclesiastical hierarchy and maybe Become a monsignor and then become a a bishop and, and then he would have a nice apartment and a nice place. And, well, those days I don't think they had automobiles, but, uh, whatever. They would be, you know, he would get a nice place. And he wouldn't have to do much. Certainly not go out to the edges of society and serve the poor. It was for him an invitation to facilitate a form of careerism. It's a thing that Pope Francis has tried to mitigate as much as possible now in the in the new reorganization of the Curia, so people only stay there for a certain amount of time and then and then they have to I don't know apply for renewal or whatever. So just like he he's just got this great revulsion for anything that smacks of careerism of people wanting to get ahead and but. Well, we know St. Israel was completely uninterested in that type of life. It had no appeal to him. He really wanted to be a priest 100% through and through, right down as he would say to the last whisker. And no interest in moving up the ladder. And perhaps partly because of that his relationship with that uncle started to de- deteriorate after that. His Uncle maybe was trying to do what he thought was a good thing, but he was he, he got no response from that point of view and uh, after our Lord showed Saint jeiah his mission to start this what you might call this mobilization of engaged Christians throughout all sectors of society, he realized of course, to do this he needed help couldn't do this all alone so he went to the peripheries, those people that could help. He went to the places in the church where people suffered. He went to the poor of Madrid, to the smelly places, to the poor neighborhoods, to the hospitals where many were dying in those days of tuberculosis. It was it was like the COVID of those days where large sectors of society had been devastated it was quite impressive to see last year actually March 27th today was the 28th but last year a year ago March 27th when the Pope was there on this absolutely desolate rain soaked St. Peter's Square as he kissed the feet of Jesus on that ancient crucifix from from St. Marcello in Corso a crucifix that had been used in prior pandemics and that was used to you know, was carried through the city for the Romans who were were dying and uh, that was when he did that, well that was in the midst of the the depth of the pandemic many had been dying many that That had been in Rome as well. Many priests. My own thesis director died. He was only seventy-two, but he died of COVID. And uh, then, of course, on the day of his first mass, during that reception in his mother's uh, home, there—that's, as I understand, that's where he received the news of his first assignment that he would go to this little village called Perdigela, where a priest as I understand had taken ill, taken leave and so he would replace that that priest that would be his first pastoral experience so today we ask the Lord for that same generosity that same uh, dedication and um, when our father received that, that assignment, he said, okay, it was as though he was saying, now, here I am. Just that he had said that day itself in the ordination. Was as though he said, in theory, in the ordination, but now he was saying it for real. He was going to go out. And as a priest, he would often carry with him this crucifix in his pocket. It was, uh, well, it was a pocket-sized crucifix, but still quite large probably quite awkward to carry but then he would preach with it like oh, I have one here of course uh, you've placed here and he would preach with it and he would you know he would keep one also on his desk and it helped him to offer his work it helped him to preach but it also reminded him of the generosity that he was called to exercise and that you and I are all always called to if it's an invitation for all of us, every time we pass by a crucifix, okay, Lord, I'm ready. Atsum. adsum. I am present. I am here to do what you ask. Some of us receive the grace of priesthood, of course. Obviously, not everybody has. But no matter what our vocation is, priest, lady, whatever it may be, we say, Atsum, I am here to serve you wherever you want of me to be effective in the midst of the world. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you how to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.